Hello and welcome to The Course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Ariel Fox, Assistant Professor of Chinese Literature from the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations. Her research explores the intersection of literary and economic imaginaries in late imperial China. Professor Fox is also on the Committee on Theater and Performance Studies. She's here to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. So, Ariel, let's start off with an overview of your career path. We can begin in your undergraduate years. And can you take me all the way up to your current role at the University of Chicago? Sure. Yeah, I can. I can definitely try. Um, So I did my undergraduate degree at Columbia. And when I started there, I really thought that I was going to be majoring in political science. I had spent like my whole childhood really fixated on the idea that I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to work for the ACLU. I get to college and because of AP tests and whatnot, I kind of test out of all of the introductory courses. I end up taking a fairly advanced, like graduate student class on political science. And it was just like so <laughs> disappointing. It was probably the wrong class for me to take at that particular moment. It was probably my own mistake. But at the time, I was also interested because I had done this summer program when I was in high school that was focused on Chinese culture, history, literature. It was this thing called the New Jersey Scholars Program. It's kind of like, I think a lot of states have things called governor's school. It's similar to that where students from across the state can apply and do this kind of residential college-like seminar program when they're in high school in the summer. Um, And the topic the year I did, it had to do with China, which I had never really, you know, thought about before in any sustained academic way. So I had really enjoyed this experience because I went to a public high school that was really, it was a really great school, but it had a very sort of limited curriculum and it was all very sort of, you know, Euro-American focused. So it was really exciting to learn about all the things I didn't know. And so when I went to college, I thought, okay, this would be like my minor. So when my major ended up being sort of deeply disappointing, I ended up finding a lot of, uh, it it was really sort of exciting to delve more into the Chinese history and and literature side sort of ran from the social sciences into the warm embrace of the more sort of humanistic inquiry. So I I ended up majoring in East Asian studies at Columbia. Um, I found a really wonderful community of of students and scholars there who are really supportive. Um, I also met a lot of graduate students. So I, I got a sense of what graduate school was like and what it was about, what kinds of things a graduate student does, what kinds of things um, an academic desk because it was a fairly small department. So I was able to work closely with faculty members there and get to know what their lives were like and what they did. And so I, after undergrad, I applied for a bunch of fellowships. I ended up doing this thing called the Blakemore, which funds a, a year of language study abroad as well as a, a Fulbright. So I spent two years in, in Beijing after college where I was, you know, continuing to work on language, continuing to work on, you know, reading the books that I was interested in. And then I applied to graduate programs. I ended up going to Harvard. And then at the end of that, I applied to to jobs and got the one at UChicago. I also had applied to postdocs. And so I, I, I received when I was on the job market, you kind of apply simultaneously to postdocs and, and jobs. And I, I got a postdoctoral fellowship at Academia Sinica, which is a uh, research institution in Taiwan. So I was there uh, for a year. Chicago allowed me to take a year and to work on my research at Academia Sinica before starting 
at the University of Chicago, where I've been since 2015, I believe. Yes. So Ariel, tell me a little bit about what your research interests are. And if you could explain it to me, like I'm a high schooler, that would be awesome. My research um, centers around the literature of the late Ming and the early Qing periods, uh, roughly the 17th century. And I'm particularly interested in drama. Drama at this particular moment was extremely, extremely popular. You could see it in any number of contexts. You could see it at the marketplace. You'd see it at a temple, in a private home, in a garden, in the palace. There was a real kind of interest and really kind of craze for drama, which Chinese drama at this particular moment um, might be better translated as opera. It was all sort of sung. Um, well, I mean, I guess there, there was dialogue, right? So it wasn't like sort of Western opera work completely sung through, but um, the, the emphasis really is on um, you know, these, these sort of centerpiece, centerpiece arias. So it's a very musical genre. So tremendously popular, both as a written form, as a performance form, people from, from all different sorts of walks of life are really interested in drama at this particular moment. But one of the things that I always found really interesting about a lot of the dramas, especially the most sort of famous dramas that are talked about in my field, are that this moment, the 17th century, was a moment of tremendous commercial, economic engagement and transformation, especially in the cities and the areas where drama was particularly popular. And a lot of the plays at this time don't really engage with the the new kind of economic terrain, the new kinds of social terrains made possible by all of these, these different sorts of changes that are happening throughout early modern Chinese society. And if they do sort of engage with these questions, they are, you know, often, you know, negative or hostile towards some of the kinds of, of social transformations that are happening. What I found really interesting was there's a body of plays that were very, very popular at the time and sort of increasingly studied now that take a, a very different sort of approach to a lot of the transformations that are happening at this particular moment, you know, rather than consigning the merchant to the margins or casting him as a sort of villain who's threatening the, you know, scholarly lead. These are plays that move the merchant and his money and commercial exchange to the very center of the plays and, and find ways to kind of, you know, not just sort of recuperate the sorts of things that merchants are, are sort of doing and making possible, um, but to make broader claims about the universality of this experience at this particular moment, the ways in which everyone is becoming a, a merchant of a sort, is engaged in new forms of social relations that are deeply enmeshed in local and global exchanges and doing so in ways that open up possibilities rather than sort of anxiously turn away necessarily. So these body of plays I find to be um, really sort of interesting and compelling to, to look at very closely, to sort of look at how their narratives work, how their characterization works, um, and also their sort of reception and publication history. So that's the sort of body of materials that I look at in my first book, which is, which is in production now, which is called The Cornucopian Stage, Performing Commerce in Early Modern China. So Ariel, how did you realize that this was something that you really wanted to focus on? That's a good question. I mean, I think it's just from, you know, I was just reading a lot of plays. And in my field, there are you know, a handful of plays that have been translated, right? So you encounter them as an undergrad. They are still in some, in, in various forms in the repertoire, quenchu performance, the uh, sort of opera troops that are, that are active 
now that are that perform these plays. So there, there's a sort of canonical body of plays that everyone is very familiar with that operate in a very particular way. So when I, I started reading a lot more plays, more obscure plays, plays that only exist in perhaps manuscript form or plays that just were sort of published and forgotten or, or perhaps published. And I mean, some of these plays were actually extremely popular and were published repeatedly and uh, transformed in, in, in various ways, but they, you know, just had not received the same amount of attention necessarily. So just by reading a lot of plays and sort of seeing new patterns emerge, seeing when you get very used to how a particular form or genre works, right? The sort of expectations of, you know, who can be the main character. These plays are often very focused on objects, right? So the plays will often be named for an object and this object will circulate across the stage. And as various characters interact with this object, they sort of form a community through the circulation recognition of an object. And usually in the the plays that are produced in the, the early modern period, this object is something that is invested with the, it's, it's a sort of incommensurable object that only somebody with elevated, you know, literati or particularly artisanal knowledge would recognize. And so the communities that are formed are very sort of particular around these incommensurable objects. So when I start to encounter plays where the thing that's circulating is not incommensurable, but infinitely commensurable, right? It's money that's circulating. So instead of this, you know, special fan that has a special inscription and is one of a kind, it's, you know, a bunch of coins. And the sorts of narrative that it's able to create, the sorts of problems and the sorts of communities that form around these objects are radically different than in the other sorts of plays that are more concerned with regenerating, repopulating a certain kind of, you know, social community on stage. So I think it was just, sorry, this is a a fairly rambly answer, but it, I think it's, you know, from just reading a lot and then being able to sort of see when playwrights are playing with the form, when they are altering the form in ways that maybe seem seem subtle, but are actually, you know, represent fundamental shifts. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that when you were younger, you thought you wanted to be a lawyer. Why did, why was that a, a goal of yours at that time? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, it clearly comes from me not really knowing lawyers. I, I have a lot of friends who are lawyers now and, you know, I see what actual lawyers do. And I think when I was younger, it was just sort of like what you did if, or the imagination was, it was what I, what you did if you liked to argue, liked to, to debate things, right? If you were um, really engaged with debating ideas with other people, what you do is you become a lawyer. Um, and so I, I really loved debating. And, you know, when I, this was, I mean, this started quite young. I, I was really sort of fixated on the idea of being a lawyer. Um, by the time I was in like junior high and high school, I was very active in, you know, debate and mock trial and that sort of stuff. And, you know, I, I really wanted to, you know, I imagined that I would become a lawyer for something like the ACLU. Like I, I thought that there were particular kind of like public service things that I could do with this. So I thought that I was really well suited for it. I really enjoyed debating. I really enjoyed writing. So I think that I I had a very sort of limited imagination of like what the possibilities were for somebody who, who enjoyed doing those, those sorts of things. Um, And I probably got a lot of feedback from people like, oh, you love to debate or you love to argue or you love to, to, you know, really chew over a text. You'll be a lawyer. You'll be a great lawyer, that sort of thing. So it really wasn't until um, I got to college that a world of different sorts of possibilities opened up. And it sounds like those things that you enjoy, the reading, the arguing, the debating, the mulling over text, 
that's something that you get to do in your current work, right? Yeah, precisely that, you know, it's, there, there are ways in which it very sort of clearly maps on to my younger interests in, in the sense of interacting with the text very critically, like thinking with the text, thinking against the text, being in a classroom setting and, and, and debating with people different sort of ideas and theories and, and that sort of things. But I mean, also in a very important way, it was quite a departure from what I thought I was good at and what I wanted to do. Um, you know, there was something about when I was taking these classes in, in college. And, you know, part of the, part of the reason why I started to work on Chinese, you know, literature and history was in part because Columbia had a language requirement. And I, I took French in high school and I was terrible, terrible, terrible at it. And I thought, you know, I have this interest in China from this program that I had done. Um, so what's the opposite of French, right? Like I hated French grammar. So I thought Chinese, right? Chinese does not have grammar, anything approaching like French grammar. So I thought maybe I'll be good at Chinese. I was wrong. I was bad at Chinese. And there was something about doing something that I was bad at and sort of committing to it. Being an academic didn't really necessarily feel, even at the time, even though I was very excited by the prospect, it never really felt like necessarily a good fit for my personality. It's very solitary. It's very, especially in my field, it's it's very sort of intensively, linguistically sort of rooted, right? And I, and I really sort of struggled with that particular aspect. So I think at the time I had a fairly romantic idea that I should do something that I'm bad at, that I should challenge myself. And it would be more important for me as a person to, I guess, struggle against myself in particular ways, which sounds a bit silly now. But at the time, it, was, it, it kept me going, I guess, when... I found myself, you know, really, really sort of struggling <laughs> with some of the aspects of being an academic. Well, related to that point, why be an academic? Because there are many things you could be with the skills and the interests that you just laid out. Right. Good question. I mean, I think that I, I mean, you know, I, there were things that I loved about it as well. I mean, you know, the, there's the being able to just spend as much time as I wanted with a question or a problem or text, that kind of freedom, that kind of space. And I, I really loved being in seminar and talking with people and meeting individually with professors. And then, you know, so just knowing that when you're an academic, you have these kinds of conversations that operate on various different levels, these conversations that you're having with yourself with as much time as you want to sort of spend with reading a text and thinking about a text with your colleagues, with other people in the field, with students, you know, undergrad, graduate students, and, you know, these, these varied kinds of conversations that you can have without, I mean, there's obviously pressures, right, that come with being an academic, but it felt there's something expansive about what the academy offered in terms of time and space to to think about real and and serious things. Let's talk about what are the fun parts of your job. Oh, there's a lot of really fun parts. Um, I mean, teaching, of course, is really fun. To be able to design classes that have a particular shape to them where you're taking students on a kind of intellectual journey with you through the material, getting to share. I mean, because, you know, some of the stuff that I work on is just so much fun. I, you know, teach a lot of novels and short stories and to, you know, be there when students are encountering them and excited by them and, and thinking through all of the, the sort of issues and, and implications of the things that we're encountering is, is really wonderful. And also to be surprised continually by my students, by what they pick up on in a text that I've never seen before or how they make connections, you know, across across other fields. 
Um, so I think that that's always like really sort of satisfying to sort of experience. And the University of Chicago is particularly wonderful in that regard, um, both because of the quarter system, which can be a bit intense for the students because, you know, they're, they're taking three quarters over the course of the academic year. For faculty, it's really wonderful because you get to create these small classes. There's kind of a culture at the university of more focused classes because we only have a nine-week quarter. You don't really teach classes that you might find at other universities, like Introduction to Chinese Literature or something like that. We teach classes that might just be about a novel or about a short story collection or about one play. And then over the course of those nine weeks, you delve into all these different things that kind of surround this one text or body of text. So it allows you to not feel like you have to cram all sorts of information in, but to really move about a topic in in a really interesting and, and novel kind of way. So on the flip side of that, Ariel, what are the things that you don't enjoy? You know, like the not fun things about this job? Yeah. So in, in terms of things that I that I don't particularly enjoy about the job, and I'm not sure if this is, this is necessarily related to my job per se, but the academic job market has been particularly brutal the last few years, um, especially coming off of COVID. We're lucky in my field that there is still a decent amount of hiring that's being done in, you know, Chinese literature, Chinese culture. We've had a good, we, we, we've done a good job, I think, placing our students in positions, but, you know, it's, it's always difficult helping students through the the sort of anxieties and the difficulties of the job search process, which is, you know, why if you're considering a career in the academy, it's a sort of wonderful career. There are so many wonderful things you can you can do with it, but being aware of also the particular kinds of pressures and the seemingly increasingly limited job prospects, honestly, is something that 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 needs to be that needs to be considered. And so, you know, that's that's a difficulty, right, of of sort of helping students through that process. I mean, it is is fulfilling in a way as well, right? Being able to support students through that process and generally to see them end up in a place that they are, that they're happy in. But that's the sort of particularities of, you know, a PhD in the humanities at this particular moment. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, aside from making sure that you're aware of the realities of the job market, what other advice would you have for students interested in pursuing a similar path, a similar role that you have now? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a good piece of advice, um, and it was advice that I was given and that I took, and I probably could have taken it even further, but that, you know, don't go right through. Don't do your BA and immediately start a PhD program if you have other options open to you. It's just, it's good to take a break. It's good for your intellectual development. It's good for your sort of, you know, psychological well-being. It's good to just you know, take a moment and work someplace else or, you know, do do something else or do something related rather than, you know, graduate school is so intense. It requires a really kind of single-minded focus. It ends up kind of consuming all different kinds of areas of your life. And so to have a space to to breathe and think and think about, you know, what it is that you're interested in rather than sort of, you know, rushing into a PhD program, you know, I, I understand that the pressures that that people face that it's unclear what, what people want to do next. So, so sometimes people see a graduate program as a way to, to find the thing that they want to do next. But I would just caution to you know slow down a little bit and think about it, even if you're 100% certain that's what you want to do. I was 100% certain that's what I wanted to do. But I also wanted to take some time to, to read more, to think more, to get myself in a better position in terms of you know my abilities in, in classical Chinese and, and that sort of thing. So the, the, the kinds of 
things that you can do in that space in between undergrad and graduate school will, will help you down the road if you do end up pursuing a career in academia. And then another thing would be, you know, especially for undergraduate students who are interested in pursuing a career in the academy is to don't fear the office hours. I think there's, you know, I've I've encountered a lot of students at the University of Chicago who are generally, you know, go-getting students, bold students, but there's a sense that you only go to office hours if you have something really pressing to talk about. There's a sense of sort of discomfort around office hours as if you're, you know, interrupting the professor or something like that. But um, I would really encourage students who are interested in academia or to have questions about it. What is it like to be a professor? What do the different terms mean? I've encountered so many students who have no idea what's an assistant professor, what's an associate professor. These are sort of, you know, really kind of opaque terms to them. Just to stop in, just to make an appointment with a professor who you feel connected with or would like to connect with. And just to ask them, ask them questions. You don't need to have um, any particular goal for that meeting or a particular question. But I think that they would really welcome that kind of interaction. It would really help demystify the process. So Ariel, finally, I want to ask you, how do you think the time that you spent abroad, the time in China and the time in Taiwan, really benefited not only your career, but you as a person? Yeah, I mean, the time that I spent abroad was was truly invaluable in every sense. I went to Beijing after after college, before graduate school, um, and then I was in in Shanghai for a number of years during graduate school, and I was finishing my dissertation in Shanghai and Suzhou, and I was working on my dissertation. And then after at Academia Sinica in in Taipei, and then of course I've, I've you know gone on many many research trips since then. And yeah, I mean, of course, just a sort of obvious the tremendous leap in you know, my language ability from spending time there, the access to materials, and of course, the access to a a huge world of scholars who are engaged in the questions that I'm interested in. You know, East Asian departments in the United States are fairly small, like you're not going to get, I mean, University of Chicago is a particularly special case in that, you know, I have a colleague who works on something very similar to what I work on, Judith Seitland, but most university departments, you're going to be the only one who works on, say, early modern Chinese literature or modern Chinese literature. And when you go abroad, when you go to China, when you go to Taiwan, there are massive departments of people with tons of graduate students who are doing exciting, cutting-edge work, fascinating work on your field. So you're able to have conversations with just so many more, so many more people. And it really kind of opens up because, you know, the, the different academies or right, different places have different ways that they approach scholarship, that they think about, like, what are the kinds of questions that an academic asks? And so it's really good to, to um, you know, engage with different academic communities that challenge your idea of what does a professor work on? What are the interesting questions in the field right now? What are the materials available so it's kind of really wonderful in that regard and really opening up the kinds of questions and projects that that you can work on. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've taught at the Chicago Beijing Center a few times, and that's always just been such a sort of wonderful experience. And so I would really encourage students to study abroad, to travel abroad, to live abroad, especially when it, they have a sort of int- academic interest right, that it will really help deepen your, your sort of holistic understanding of what it is that you're, that you're interested in. Thank you, Professor Ariel Fox, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, 
please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more and thanks for listening.